Some of you watching that video might be a little bit confused if you were here last week when Pastor Disney preached, I'm excuse me, Pastor Brian preached, because his sermon was on the parting words, and it came out at the very end of the book of Joshua, and these last things that Joshua said to the people of Israel. So you may have come to the conclusion that the series is over, and now... We're still going. And I told you three weeks ago that we're not going to do this in chronological order. In fact, we're going for four more weeks. And today we're going to be looking specifically in Joshua chapter eight. If you want to turn there, we're going to take a little bit of time to get there. Um, I want us to spend some time in Deuteronomy first before we get to Joshua chapter eight. And speaking of Deuteronomy, if you've been a part of this series, you may know that I think it's every week that I've preached in the series, I've referenced back to the book of Deuteronomy. And the reason being is that the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua are really closely tied, not just close uh, in the Bible right after each other, but the things that Moses lays out in Deuteronomy, they play out in Joshua. The things that he outlines, Joshua implements, and there's a lot of connection there, and we'll see that again even uh, today. Speaking of Deuteronomy, it's a, it's a big word, it's a five-syllable uh, word. When our girls were really young, um, I decided that it would be a good uh, challenge for us as a family to memorize the books of the Bible, all 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. I'd memorized it when, it was, when I was about their age. And memorizing lists of things is difficult. There's not kind of this you know, pattern that goes. There's not a, a flow to it, especially when you're memorizing lists of words you would never use in your normal context of conversation, words you've never heard before, words that are long, words like Deuteronomy for an eight-year-old. And I thought, how am I going to help these girls memorize this one? And they couldn't even get the M and the N right. It's always Deuteronomy. You know? So there, there's, it bothered me. So I had this idea that I would give them a tangible, physical way to remember this as we were memorizing these. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus was tough, Numbers, and then this one. You remember the Adams family, the, the thing, the little hand that would just kind of crawl around? It was along that line, but it wasn't the thing. So I said to my girls, you see this? You know what this is? This is a little dude, little dude. And so I would crawl him around. This is the little dude. He's a little duder. And then I would crawl up their arm. The little duder is on you. And then I'd crawl him up my arm, and the little duder is on me. And then I said, that's how you can always remember this. Duder on a me. So when we would go through the books about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and all I had to do was this. Deuteronomy. It's classic. You'll never forget it now. I gave them a physical, tangible way to help them remember Deuteronomy. And the irony is not lost on me that the book of Deuteronomy, one of the main themes of the entire book is to remember, to remember the things that God says, to remember the commands that were given. And it's not lost on me as well that Moses, when he wrote the book of Deuteronomy, he gave the people of Israel a physical, tangible reminder that would be on them to remind them of these things as well. In Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, we've talked about this many, many times. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. Then it says this in verse 6. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And then he says, I'm going to give you a little Deuteronomy, a physical, tangible way to remember this. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And then he goes on to say, and put them on your doorposts and on your gates. As a physical reminder, when you see these things, you will remember these things. And to this day, when we're in Jerusalem, especially with the Orthodox Jewish men at the Wailing Wall, they have a box on their forehead and a box on their hand. It's called a phylactery. And inside that box is scriptures from Deuteronomy. They take this very literally. 
And more common, if you go into any Jewish establishment at all, any Jewish business, any Jewish home, any Jewish hotel, into the gate of any Jewish yard, at every door in every room of every Jewish hotel, on the right-hand side, there's a little thing called a mezuzah. It, it comes in many different forms. I have a, one made out of olive wood that I bought. It's a mezuzah. And it's on the doorpost. And if you actually took them off, usually they're little cylinders. If you actually took them off, you would find that in the back, there's a little scroll, a little rolled up uh, section of scripture out of Deuteronomy to remind them. And what you see here is that Moses is giving them this physical reminder. I want you to remember these things. I want them on your forehead. I want them on your hand. I want them on your doorpost. I want them on your gates. And what Deuteronomy is trying to help them to remember, a theme that you see over and over again repeated, is this kind of a if-then, cause and effect, life and blessings. You see it over and over again. In Deuteronomy 28, we see this where he says, if, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, here's kind of the condition. If you'll do this, fully obey him, carefully follow his commands, the commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. He's saying, here's the deal. If you'll do this, then you will experience this. If you will follow, if you will obey, then you will experience the blessings of God. Amen. And the converse is true as well. In verse 15, he says, however... If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So if you don't do these things, then there's a cause and effect and there's consequences that come with that as well and you're not gonna experience the blessings of God. And in Deuteronomy 28, there's a whole list of these blessings and curses that will come upon. It's almost like you could read that as God saying, you better do this or else. It reminds me, and I know none of you have experienced this, when our, when our daughters were a little older, uh, we had one of our daughters that was going through a, a real teenage attitude thing. I know we're very, uh, the exception to the rule, most of your kids are just angels, but our daughter was going through some teenage, teenage attitude stuff. And there were some things we had to kind of get in line. And I sat uh, our daughter down one time, I said, okay, listen, here's the deal. If you will do this, and if you'll do this, here's what's going to happen. You'll keep getting your allowance. You're going to build trust with mom and I. You're going to get to go over to your friend's house. You're going to get to do a lot of activities. But if you don't, like if, if you keep doing some of these things, I'm just telling you, and I kind of went through this list, and I just said, it's not going to be good for you. And in her teenage attitude, she said, is that a threat? <laughs> now, this is not my, my proudest parenting moment. But just like that, I said, it's not a threat. It's a promise. Okay, I lowered myself to her level, not a real problem, I'm not setting that up as an example. It's true, but I'm not real proud of that. And someone say, well, that, that's kind of what God, you know, the Israel saying, is this a threat? And he said, it's not a threat, it's a promise. I don't think that's the attitude at all. I think what you see here is that it's an invitation. God's giving them some information. This is how life works. And I'm inviting you. See, when we see the law that God gives to Israelites, we see this list of all these things and the duties and the obligation and the heaviness of it all. The law was not given to them for some kind of a behavioral modification tool that they would be threatened and live under fear with. The law was an invitation to the life of blessing. They said, if you want to live a blessed life, this is how you do it. And there's some terms and conditions in this relationship. God and Israel had a covenant relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people. 
I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail, but there's three different kinds of covenants in the Old Testament. One is called uh, a kinship covenant. It's where both parties are equal and both benefit from whatever the treaty or the covenant. It's like if you sell a car or you buy a piece of property, you get the money, they get the car, you get the property, they get the money, whatever. You both benefit. It's mutually, uh, you know, mutually beneficial. That was not the kind of uh, covenant that Yahweh and Israel were in. There's another covenant, and it's called a royal grant. And that's where someone just gives some gift and no strings attached. And, you know, you don't have to like me. You don't have to follow me. None of that. You just have this. It's just a gift given. That was not the kind of covenant that Yahweh and Israel were in. The kind of covenant they were involved in is what's referred to as a suzerain covenant or suzerain treaty. And that is where the parties are not equal. It's like a king and a vassal. One of the parties in this treaty really doesn't even need the treaty, doesn't even need the covenant. They're just kind of got this benevolent spirit. And because they enter into it, the other party benefits greatly. And the one that doesn't need to be a part of this treaty actually gets to set the terms and conditions because they don't really benefit that much anyway. And that's the kind of covenant that Yahweh and Israel were a part of. Yahweh didn't need Israel. He could have chosen someone other than Abraham. He could have chosen a different nation to be his chosen people. He does this, and he offers them these benefits, and he sets the terms and conditions. I don't know if that makes sense. Let me try to illustrate this way, and I've used this illustration before, but it really helps me understand this better. My father-in-law has a 1966 convertible Mustang. Love this car. And when I ask to borrow it, he lets me drive it. And he has for years. And then about five years ago, things changed. Now, we didn't call it a suzerain covenant. We didn't write out the contract. But things changed in relationship to this car. You see, the car belongs to my father-in-law. His name is on the title. He bought the car. He pays for the insurance on the car. He puts new tires on the car. He has all the mechanical work done on the car. He pays for any kind of damage that might be done to the body. It's his car. It's not mine at all. We're not co-equals in this relationship with this car. And five years ago, he says, I tell you what, why don't you, during the spring and summer, why don't you just keep the car at your house, and then you can use it whenever you want, how often you want, drive as far as you want, wherever you want, it's fine. But there's about five things I, I would just ask. One, at night, make sure you keep it in the garage. After you put the top down, make sure you put it back up so the back window doesn't get creased. Change the oil once a summer, use non-ethanol gas, and whenever I want it, I get to borrow it. Okay. <laughs> and so for the last five years, every late in the spring or early in the summer, it comes to my house and it's mine to you. It's not my car. It's completely his. He has no benefit on this one. I get all the benefits and he lays out the terms or conditions. If you do these things, you can use this car and experience the benefits. If I don't do these things, this may not work out very well next year unless he dies and I inherit it. But that has nothing to do with the covenant. <laughs> In the same way, Yahweh comes to Israel and says, listen, here's some terms and conditions, and you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless you, but there's some things you have to do. You need to follow me. You need to obey me. And then he says this to them in, in uh, Deuteronomy 30. He says, now what I command, I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's very doable. 
And if you look at a cost-benefit analysis, the benefits you gain from following these terms and conditions are enormous. And so he would lay this out. What does Israel have to offer? They were slaves. All they've got is a promise made to their great-grandpappy, Abraham. They've got a rebellious spirit that's always going to... God is the one who is offering so many benefits. And they don't have to accept this. They don't have to. In fact, he, he lays this out again in Deuteronomy 30. He says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today the, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands. That's the decrees and laws. That you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering in to possess. It says, it's not your land. I'm giving you this. You don't even have to fight for it. I'll do that for you. I will provide for you. But, but if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. You're not entitled to this. This is not a royal grant. You can lose this privilege. In fact, years later, I think it was in 586 BC, when the Babylonians came and took them, they were in a 70-year timeout because they didn't follow. So listen, there's some things that you need to do. So Moses lays this out for them. I want you to remember these things. This if-then, there's blessings and there's curses, there's life and there's death, but you get to choose. You follow and obey, there's gonna be amazing things. And then he goes up on Mount Nebo and he dies. Now, before he dies, he gives them a glimpse of what they're going to experience. Some generally and some, some very specific that we're going to look at today. How he knows this, I'm not entirely sure. Probably from the spies that he had spent, sent in 38 years earlier. Maybe from just word of mouth. But one of the things he says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11, he says, but the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. Kind of sounds like Whatcom County. All right. <laughs> land of mountains and valleys. Now, he's speaking literally the, the topography of the landscape, and he's contrasting that with the wilderness, but you can almost see that in a figurative way. If you're going into this land, and you're going to have some ups, and you're going to have some downs. And they'd already experienced this. The upside of, of God stopping up the Jordan River and they get to walk across on dry ground. The upside of Jericho, all they do is march around and blow trumpets and God does the work. The downside of what happened at Ai and Achan and the losses there. But here he's talking about like this topo map of Israel. There's going to be mountains and there's going to be valleys. And what we'll see today is that there are some very specific mountains and a very specific valley that he's going to point them to. He's going to give them some instructions about these mountains and a very, a very important event to do. And Joshua takes these things from Deuteronomy and he begins to live them out. And as we saw early in week two, I think, of this series, when God says to Joshua in Joshua chapter one, verse seven, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do everything Moses wrote down for you. And some of them are general laws that they would do for the rest of his life and for decades and for centuries. 
But the one we're going to look at today wasn't this ongoing law. It was a part of Deuteronomy where there was a very specific thing they were supposed to do at a very specific place with some very specific mountains. And what you find here is these explicit details. And Joshua carries them out. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Don't overlook this. It's laid out in great detail in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, and then it's fulfilled in Joshua chapter 8. Joshua 27 and 28 gives a lot of detail that is not repeated in Joshua. It doesn't need to be. It's already been listed there. And you can read on your own Joshua 27 and 28 to get all the fine details of this and to fact check me. But instead of reading through all of Deuteronomy 27 and 28, I want to just kind of give you the story of what Moses writes to them in Joshua 27 and 28. So here's what I want you to do. Just listen, children, to a story that was written long ago about a kingdom on a mountain and a valley folk below. On the mountain stood a treasure buried deep beneath the stone. And the valley people swore they'd have it for their very own. Ooh, that's poetic. That ought to be a song. Okay, so I am going to need a little bit of participation. Can you help me out with that today? Okay, you said yes, or at least some of them did. But we're taking that for all of you. Little participation. Okay, so Moses lays this out. Not just you're going into a place where there's mountains and valleys. He says, when you cross the Jordan River, when you go into this promised land, I want you to go to these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Say Gerizim. Gerizim. And say Ebal. Ebal. You go to these two mountains, and they're kind of side by side. There's a valley between them. And I want you to take everybody to these mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. I want you to take everybody, not just the fighting men, not just the, the priests. I want everybody there. And when you go to these two mountains, I want you to set up some stones, some big stones, and I want you to put plaster all over these stones. And in this plaster, I want you to write or inscribe all the book of the law of Moses. A little bit of a reminder of what God had Moses do on Mount Sinai with the tablets. But on this plaster, I want you to write all the laws of the book of Moses. And remember, they don't all have copies of the Bible. They don't have the Gideons giving them free copies of the Torah or anything of that nature. Oh yeah, there's the law that's in the Ark of the Covenant, but how would they, have, I mean, they've been instructed that it should be read every seven years, but how will they know? Well, this is how they can know. It's a public display of the entire law of Moses, and he, and he does that. He says, and when you're at these mountains, I want you to set up an altar, very specific on, the, on how this altar is to be set up. I want you to use field stones. I don't want you to use quarried stones, and I don't want you to dress the stones. I don't want you to use iron tools on them. I don't want you to chisel them. I want you to just take stones from the field, and I want you to build this big altar, and I want you to give uh, some sacrifices, some offerings, very specifically, a burnt, uh, burnt offering and a, a fellowship uh, offering as well. And then when you get everybody together out here at these mountains, I want you to take half of the nation, six tribes, and I want you to put them over on one mountain, Mount Gerizim. And the other six, I want you to put on the other mountain, Mount Ebal. And Mount Gerizim is going to represent the blessings that God has for you. And Mount Ebal is going to represent the curses if you don't follow his way. And we're going to read through these blessings and these curses. And then at the end, all God's people will say, amen. So, that was kind of the situation. Here's what I want you to do. And I want to just tell you, last night's group struggled a little bit with this. I think you're able to take it to the next level. So stand up because you can help me participate. And, um, and, <laughs> and we're going to keep doing this until we get it right. That's not a threat. 
That's a promise. Okay. All right. So we're going to divide this group right down the middle here. And you're going to be the group over kind of on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was the mountain of blessing, if you'll recall. Yeah. Thank you. So spiritual. And you're going to be over here on Mount Ebal, which was the mountain of cursing. All right. So you remember that. All right. Don't, don't fret. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask each group individually. I'm going to ask you two questions. And then at the end, we're all going to join together and say amen. The question I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask, where are you? And the response is Mount Gerizim. Do you need to practice that or do you think you got that? Mount Gerizim. Okay, so you're practicing already. Okay, and then I'm going to ask you a question. What have you got? And this is your answer. We got blessings. Yes, we do. We got blessings. How about you? (laughs) And then I'm going to turn to you and say, where are you? And you're going to say Mount Ebal. And I'm going to say, what do you got? And you're going to say, we got curses. Yes, we do. We got curses. How about you? And you really need to participate. If the volume is not to my liking, we will do it again. Are you ready? Where are you? What do you got? And where are you? And what do you got? And all God's people said? Yeah. All right, you can sit down. All right. Much better than last night. I'm just telling you that right up front. <laughs> Maybe they hadn't had coffee or it had worn off. Anyway, so this is all the stuff that Moses lays out for them in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So they go across the Jordan River. It dries up. They get the 12 stones. They set them up at Gilgal. They have the circumcision. They do the Passover. They experience the Jericho thing, the downside of Ai, then Achan. And then they come back and they conquer Ai. Now we get to uh, Joshua chapter 8. Here we go. Joshua chapter 8, what we've been waiting for. Verse 30. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now Moses had told them to do this, and Joshua does it. He builds an altar. You know, an altar is holy. And as we talked about, holy simply means set apart for God's purposes. You don't use an altar for a backyard barbecue. An altar is for God's purposes. This is a holy instrument, a holy tool, where there will be acts of worship and sacrifice that takes place on it. But there's an interesting little detail that is easy to skip over. I did highlight it, so maybe you didn't skip over it, that he's instructed to build this altar, and he builds the altar And there's two mountains that he can choose, a mountain of blessing and a mountain of cursing. And he builds the altar on Mount Ebal, the mountain of curses. Well, now, wait a second. If God's inviting them into this life of blessing, you would think that the worship would take place on the mountain of blessing. Why would he put the altar on the mountain of cursing? Unless maybe he knew. He knew the propensity of these people. He knew the way human beings are. He knew that they would break the law, that they wouldn't follow God completely. He knew that they would sin and that sin would separate them and sin would cause them to be under a curse. And if ever anyone needed an altar of sacrifice, it would be on the mountain of cursing. So it makes perfect sense that this holy tool that would bring them back into a right relationship would be on the mountain of cursing. What we see is, is it's, it's, it's God's solution to the sin problem. He knew they would break the law. He knew they would sin. 
He knew they would be separated from a right relationship. And so he puts the altar, the holy altar of God, in the midst of the mountain of cursing. And isn't that a glimpse of what Jesus would do? Jesus, the holy one, the one who has never sinned, who finds himself not hanging out with the religious folks, but with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those who are far from God and those who have broken the law and those who are separated from God and the Samaritans, he would find himself with them. And when people would push back, Jesus, what's a rabbi? Why is a rabbi talking to this woman? Why is a rabbi with these people? And Jesus would say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick who need the doctor. I've not come to call the righteous, but I've called to call, to, to call the sinner. I've come to call the sinners. And Jesus himself would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he who knew no sin willingly becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What an incredible picture. So he builds this altar on Mount Ebal. It goes on, verse 21. Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. Now, why was that important? Uh, Yes, Moses told him to, and he's supposed to follow it to the letter of the law, and he does, doesn't turn to the right to the left. But wouldn't it be nicer to, I mean, field stones? We get some nice quarried stones. How are, well, let's give a really good altar for our God. Let, let's, let's tidy things up. Let's make it look a little better. Now, I want to be really careful. I don't want to read into something that's not there, but I wonder if, I wonder if when God instructs through Moses that this altar would be made of field stones, not even the beautiful stones out of the Jordan River, field stones, not out of the quarry, field stones that had not been chiseled, had not been dressed, had not been shaped, that may be saying, what needs to happen on this altar? Humans can't make that better. When you're cursed and when you've sinned and when you've broken the law, you can't tidy yourself up. You can't make things look pretty. When we're talking about sacrificing to bring about righteousness to those who are under the curse, human works have no place at all. I mean, what does it say in Ephesians? It is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What did Paul say in Philippians where he's talking about all of his religious accomplishments? He says, man, they're all garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he says, I don't want to be in a, found in a righteousness that comes from my own doing, but a righteousness that is by faith right. and is from God. Yeah. It's not us. And what if this whole thing is even an image and, and a metaphor of when you come to get right with God, you don't tidy yourself up because it doesn't work. You come just as you are. Right. A field stone with rough edges and dirt. And God says, I'll do the work. You just come. And he sets up this altar made out of field stones. It goes on, verse 34, or at the end of 31. And on it, they offered the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. Now, again, I don't, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail, but 
burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. You see, laid out in the book of Leviticus, there were different kinds of offerings and sacrifices. There were burnt offerings. There were fellowship offerings. There were sin offerings. There were grain offerings. There was guilt offerings. There were all these different kinds of offerings and sacrifices. And he says, I want you to do two of them on this altar. I want you to do burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And let me just explain that a little bit. A burnt offering, you can read this in Leviticus 1, a burnt offering was for the purpose of atonement. It was the purpose of forgiveness of your sins, and a burnt offering would be consumed completely. It would be completely burnt up, completely offered up to God. And maybe that's a picture of what God does is he takes all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our sin, and he completely consumes it. But a fellowship offering is different. A fellowship offering, yeah, there's part of it that's burned, but not all of it. Part of a fellowship offering, I think you can read this one in Leviticus 3, part of a fellowship offering is that the person making this sacrifice saves some of the meat and enjoys it themselves. That there's a feast that goes. That it's like the burnt offering is for repentance and the fellowship offering is for rejoicing. That maybe in this burnt offering, we come to be reconciled, but in the fellowship offering, we reaffirm that a relationship is right again. I mean, I mean, think about this in any of your relational uh, connections with people that are close to you, a, a parent, a child, a coworker, a friend, a, you know, your spouse, whatever. When there's tension in that relationship, it's not good, you're at odds, you're not talking, there's no connection, and then something happens. Maybe someone you know, gives forgiveness or asks for forgiveness, and there's reconciliation. And after that, you, you, you connect again, and, and she's like, you know what? I hate it when we're at odds with each other. I love this. And what we see here is what's happening is that when there's this sin and there's courtesy and there's this separation from God, there's this tension, but then there's this burnt offering that atones for that. And then there's this rejoicing feast of celebration that forgiveness leads to fellowship, that this one offering gets them back into a right relationship with God. And now they can rejoice and they can feast and have this incredible time because now they're back in the right relationship with God. Isn't that what David alludes to in Psalm 51 when he is messed up so bad, broken multiple of the commandments. He's confronted with it. He's gripped with his own guilt. He writes Psalm 51 when he's just saying, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner from birth. And then he says these words, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. There's no joy right now. I know I'm guilty. I know I'm wrong. There's a separation. There's this tension. I need this forgiveness so that there's joy again. I mean, you just look at this. Here God offers them not a threat, but an invitation to a life of blessing. And he knows. He knows they're going to mess up. So God already, I mean, he's done this from Adam and Eve all the way through Jesus. God provides a way. He gives a solution to the sin problem. And it's not anything that anyone would do. It's the one who's been sinned against. It's God who does this. And we just come as we are. And it's God who wants more than anything pursuing that we would have a right relationship with him, that he would draw us back in, that he would have a longing for us to be right again. What an incredible picture. Now I'm going to skip over a couple verses again. You can read it on your own. They go out here and Joshua does the plaster on the, on the rocks and he writes the book of the law. And, and all the people are out there, half of them at Mount Gerizim and half of them at Mount Ebal. And then we read this in verse 34. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law. 
the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens, not E.T., but those who were not uh, Israelites by birth, who lived among them. He doesn't give them a Cliff's Notes version. He doesn't summarize it. Every single word of the book of the law. I never want to hear you complain about the length of my sermon again. Every single word of the book of the law, if we're talking about the Torah, that's all of Genesis, all of Exodus, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, and all of Deuteronomy. And this isn't just where he says, well, I want the priests to come out. Or I just want the heads of each clan or heads of each tribe to come out. Or I just want the men to come out. No, he says, I want the women there. I want the children there. I want Rahab and her family there. I want those who are not born to Israel, but, but they're a part of you. I want everyone there. And he reads them every word of the law of Moses. It's like it's every word for everyone. This isn't just for the Jewish men. This is for everybody. And can I just get, draw this conclusion in my mind of what I love about Cornwall Church? Is that from our nursery and our explorers league, from the edge with our middle schoolers and encounter with our high schoolers and the young adults and our small groups and our weekend service, that God's word and God's invitation is for anyone and everyone. Young, old, male, female, does not matter. And what I love about this church is from the earliest times all the way through, we're coming back to God's word. This is what we have. For This is why I, I so love this story. I mean, besides it just being a really cool story, it, it's like, it all points to Jesus. And quite frankly, it kind of points to us. That the bad news of our sin, the bad news of our guilt, the bad news of our cursing on Mount Ebal is met with the good news of the grace of God. That he reaches out to us, provides a solution, says, I'm doing this because I want you to be in a right relationship with me. Galatians chapter 3, it says this. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's bad news for us. We can't keep the law. And even if we could, as it says in Romans, the law can't save us. That's why we need the grace of God. One more thought on this. And this might be a stretch, but I think it's cool. In my head, it makes perfect sense. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. What we read in Joshua 8, we didn't hear about in Deuteronomy 27, 28, is that Joshua's in the middle, and there in the middle is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant that represents the very presence of God, the holiness of God. The law of God is contained within it, and I don't think this is an accident. What is on top of the law is the mercy seat right. of God. Right. Because we can't even keep the law. And on one side is this cursing. And the only way to leave this mountain of cursing is that a life has to be taken, an animal. A life has to be taken to atone for sins. 
And then the truth is that the only way to life on Mount Gerizim is past this holiness of God. The truth is the only way to life, the way, the truth, and the life is found in Jesus. So 1,400 years later, on another mountain of cursing, the holiness, the very presence of God, Jesus, finds himself not between two mountains, but between two crosses. And Jesus, who is always inviting anyone and everyone to a right relationship with God, continues to offer that invitation. And at the end of the day, two thieves who are guilty and deserve cursing, one of them says, hey, can I go to Mount Gerizim? Today when you enter your kingdom, would you remember me? He doesn't deserve it. He has nothing to offer. And Jesus says, this day, you'll be with me in paradise. What an amazing picture. It's not just Moses and Joshua and Israel and the two thieves on the cross. It's us. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. See, all of us, the Bible says, all of us, by our nature and by our choices, end up on Mount Ebal. And Jesus willingly comes over to become the curse so that we can go and live in the blessings of Mount Gerizim. We are redeemed from the curse. God comes to us, not with this do this or else, this threat, this fear, with an invitation, with an invitation to leave Mount Ebal and to live on Mount Gerizim. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what he has done. And he says, and this is the life that you were created to live. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, this life of blessing. So when we begin thinking about not just our conversion and salvation, but living our life, it's surrendering and walking in step and trusting and believing and committing to following God in his way and his will and his word. Saying, you know what? I want your life that you have offered to me. Not just for salvation, but for every day. This week at our small group, at the end, one of the ladies in our small group uh, shared uh, a few months back, her, her mother passed away, or maybe it was a year or so ago. Her mother passed away, and when she was going through her, uh, her stuff, she found her mom's Bible. Her mom was, um, I think, in her 90s. Found her mom's Bible, and as she was going through the Bible, she found this prayer that her mom would pray, handwritten, and she read it to us. And I thought, thought I would read it to us. I remember this woman was in her 90s, so it's kind of in, in King James vernacular, but to read this, what if this was our prayer in recognizing what God has done to take us from Mount Ebal to Mount Gerizim? And this was the prayer. 
in obedience to thy holy claim upon me, I give myself anew to thee this day. All that I am, all that I have, to be holy and unconditionally thine for thy using. Take me away from myself and use me as thou wilt, when thou wilt, where thou wilt, and with whom thou wilt. God, I want to live in the blessings of Mount Gerizim. I want to keep in step with your spirit. I want to walk in your ways. Take my life and let it be consecrated, wholly committed, Lord, to thee. To live our lives in the blessings that God invites us to. It's to follow his way and to walk in obedience. That's what I want for us, to live that way.